glad you are all here today. We are in 2 Peter chapter 2, and uh, a little bit of chapter 1. It is a long passage, so we're going to read it as we go through it. So let's begin with prayer. Before I do that, let me say welcome home. We have some folks who've been away, have been away a short time, been away a long time. I'm glad that you are all back. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us again to the book of 2 Peter to learn about Christ and how he wants us to live. Lord, teach us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to make every effort to understand your truth and to live by what we know. These are words about truth and falsehood, trust and discernment, and we need these skills more than ever. So open our ears to hear them and our minds to understand them and our hearts to believe them and enable us to follow them. As always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us consider what it means to embrace the way of truth as it is presented in your word. And so we pray, speak through the words of the Apostle Peter this morning and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. In his book, Start With Why, Simon Sinek discusses the importance of motivation in a fascinating section entitled, It's What You Can't See That Matters. Now, his example comes from a failed business plan. See, not that long ago, detergent advertisers promoted their products with statements like, it gets your whites whiter and your brights brighter. And that's what the market research revealed that customers wanted. But was it really? He explains the data was true, but the truth of what people wanted was different. The makers of laundry detergent asked consumers what they wanted from their detergent. And consumers said they wanted whiter whites and brighter brights. So the brands tried to differentiate how they got your whites whiter and your brights brighter by trying to convince consumers that their additive was more effective than other additives. Therefore, you should buy their detergent. However, the ad campaign didn't work. People bought what they always bought. See, the problem was no one asked the consumers why. They wanted their clothes clean. And while they asked the consumers what they wanted, nobody took the time to watch the consumers. And so a little while later, realizing this campaign was not working, they brought in a different group to study the problem, a group of anthropologists. In other words, they brought in people who specialize in studying people. And this group of anthropologists discovered that their approach, whiter whites and brighter brights, wasn't really driving buying decisions. They observed that when people took their laundry out of the dryer, no one held it up to the light to see how white and how bright it was. The first thing people did was to smell it. And he concludes, this was an amazing 
discovery. They realized that feeling clean was more important to people than being clean. That is one of the major selling points of false teachers. They make you feel clean rather than being clean. Spiritually speaking, they make you feel spiritual without actually being spiritual. They make you feel like you're right with God without actually being right with God. And the Bible reserves some of its harshest words for those who mislead God's children. As I wrote you earlier this week, we've come to one of the hardest and most negative parts of the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 2 contains a hard-hitting denunciation of false teachers. It has some of the strongest language in the New Testament. But remember, the Apostle Peter is writing about essential truths that he wants his original hearers and us to know. Now, one of the odd things about the book of 2 Peter, if you read through it a couple of times, and it's short enough to do that, that as it proceeds, it gets darker and darker and darker. This book is full of dire warnings of judgment and doom. Now, I think the reason for this is because Peter, at this point in his life, is getting old. He's about to die, and he's going to leave these people soon. Now, Tim Keller has spoken about this phenomenon, and I think he's right. And his argument is that, essentially, getting older affects you in profound ways, not only physically, but also mentally and emotionally, both positively and negatively. Let me give you an example. When I became a minister, it became clear as I visited and tried to learn how to pastor people, my older parishioners worried an awful lot more than my younger ones. They worried a lot more about their children, even though most of them were grown. They worried a lot more about their friends. They worried a lot more about the condition of society. And uh, after a few years of considering this phenomenon, I came to the conclusion that the reason older people worried a lot more than younger people was because they're smarter. Now, I don't mean that they had a higher IQ, and I don't mean they're wiser in every way. But what happens to people as you grow older, I'm starting to learn a little bit about this, is your naivete wears off. And you begin to know, no matter how secure or how safe or how well things are going, there are dangers and risks everywhere. And the older you get, the more you lose your naivete and realize how perilous life in this world really is. And I think this is something of what Peter is trying to communicate here. He's already mentioned the dangers of false teachers in this letter. The Apostle Paul regularly mentions this issue prominently in Timothy and Titus. And so both, for both of the apostles, the danger of false teachers infiltrating the church is far more serious and far more concerning than anything going on out in the culture. And so the apostle Peter goes on the offensive. And before you get turned off to the parts of the Bible that are like this, just remember that very often the most loving thing that you can do 
is to warn someone. And when something is false, the most positive thing you can do is to be negative. Sometimes the most positive thing you can do is to be negative. And so Peter starts with the destructiveness of false teaching. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. The destructiveness of false teaching. Now when it comes to the subject of false teachers and why their false teaching seems to stick to so many, we have to realize that the heart has kind of an allergy. I know a little bit about allergies. I have a bunch of them. But the heart, in a sense, has this Teflon coating when it comes to the truth. We tend to forget. We can't believe. We don't want to believe in the truth. The heart doesn't want to believe that God loves you. It can't seem to hold on to that truth. It doesn't want to believe that God should be obeyed. You think about it. Somebody tells you one time, you're ugly. You tend to believe it. That, that hits home. That hurts. But if somebody tells you 50 times, you're beautiful. It's not enough. Why? Preachers get this all the time. 11 people walk out after church and 10 say, thank you, great sermon, pastor. And one person walks out and says, I didn't get it. And what do you think about the rest of the day? That one person. You know, and if a person tells you once, God is unfair. You start to wonder about that. If God's word tells you 50 times God is perfectly wise and just, it still doesn't sink in. Why? The heart hates the truth. People will tell you to just follow your heart. There's probably no worse advice. The Bible tells you the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart can't remember the truth. The heart resists the truth. And this week we see Peter shifting from talking about the dangers in here to the dangers out there. From the dangers of your heart to the dangers that impact your heart, that change your heart. And he says the dangers of the heart and the dangers of the world are linked. Because his teaching in this chapter is that the world is so full of influences which cooperate with and aggravate the biases and disbeliefs of the heart. Now, he's teaching us, and our subject for today is the world is full of false teachers and false teaching. The world is full of heretics and heresies. And we're confronted with false teaching all the time. If you uh, read any popular media, if you watch any popular media, if you listen to any popular media, um, whether it's uh, on television or radio or online, you are being bombarded by false teaching. Every false teacher has a Twitter account. Three weeks ago, I gave the charge to the new pastor, to the now Reverend Timo Sazo. And in that, I quoted Psalm 23.3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And I told Timo that the shepherd knows the sheep are prone to wander, so he finds them and returns them to Christ. The shepherd is to be a watchman. 
And I told him that it was part of his calling to keep an eye open for the enemies of the gospel who will lure the sheep where there are no paths to follow and where wolves are lurking. So the shepherd has to be watchful to ward off attack and to save his sheep from disaster. I told him to be a watchman. Now, the reality is, and I know this from almost 32 years of preaching, is that the warning sermons, the sermons about discernment, the sermons about risking judgment, the sermons about false teachers and false teaching, the sermons about heretics and heresies are far and away the most criticized sermons. So here we go. Starting at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteousness under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, although greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals... Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Well, joy to the world. This passage is showing us that heresies exist. Peter doesn't just say that there were false prophets. He says there will be false prophets. Heresy exists. He's saying that we will always 
have heretics. There will always be false teachers and false teaching. Now, for something to be false, something else has to be true. And what we're seeing assumed in this passage is a biblical view of truth. The biblical writers are assuming that there are universal, always true moral principles that exist whether we believe it or not. And therefore, it is our goal to find out, to discover uh, them, to conform to them, or to be crushed by them. Now, the contemporary view of truth is that there are no universal moral um, always true moral principles. The contemporary view no longer even talks about truth. Instead, it talks about values, which is putting a spin on it. The contemporary view is that values are not discovered, they are constructed. You decide what is right for you. All values, all morals, all truths are therefore not discovered, they are socially constructed, and therefore they're all relative. So those are the two views. The biblical view is that that truth is discovered. The contemporary view is that truth is constructed. And the second view is the reigning view in our culture today. There is no doubt about it. And therefore, the idea of even talking about heresy or false teaching under the contemporary view is ridiculous. It's even considered dangerous. So we have this inherent conflict between a biblical view of discovering truth and a contemporary view of constructing truth. Let's go deeper. Peter not only says that heresies exist, he says that heresies destroy. You notice he doesn't just say false teachers among you will introduce heresies. Back to verse 1, he says, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. He says later that false teachers will be destroyed, but he doesn't say that here when he uses destructive heresies. He's meaning that whoever believes them are destroyed by them. Let's put it another way. We said first that truth is discovered, not constructed. Second is that truth is the basis for everything you do. So if you monkey around with your beliefs about truth, you're monkeying around with everything about your life. Because whether you believe it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, um, all of your feelings and behavior, the way you make decisions, your very life is determined by what you believe about truth. Your decisions, your priorities, the way you spend your money, who you spend your time with, all based on decisions one way or the other about these ultimate issues regarding truth. Is there a God or isn't there? Can he be known? Is human nature evil or is it good or somewhere in between? Do you find out what is right and wrong through the revelation of God or through your own feelings? When you die, will there be a judgment? Nobody makes any decisions without assuming one of those things or the other. And heresies begin by attacking the source of biblical truth. They say, you make the truth, not God. 
And that assault on the truth has been around a long time, all the way back to Genesis 3. Did God really say? Furthermore, Peter doesn't just say that the only assault on the truth is through false teachers. He also says it's through the circumstances, the trials, things in life that come from our culture. He talks about in verses 4 through 10, trials in a series of if-then statements. I have a chart. Can we put that up? All right. I don't know how well you can read that, but here you have if, and this is negative, and this is positive. So judgment on the unrighteous, deliverance for the righteous. And he gives us five if statements, three negative, two positive. If God did not spare angels, if God did not spare the ancient world, if God condemned cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, if God delivered Noah, if God delivered Lot, then then God knows how to hold the unrighteous uh, for punishment of the day of judgment. Then God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He gives us examples of Noah and Lot. Now think about these two examples. Noah suffered unjustly. He was told to build an ark, and for years he built an ark. There's no rain coming, and everybody made fun of him. He was ridiculed. He's trying to obey God, and the harder he tried to obey, the more he became a laughingstock. Now Lot's different. Lot disobeyed God. He went to live in a wicked city against God's wishes, and he saw his family get consumed and corrupted by it. And Lot had to live with the self-recrimination and the regret of having made such a serious error. Now, these trials, these circumstances are very different. In one case, in the Noah kind of uh, trial, you get mad at God. Why are you letting this happen? In the Lot kind of trial, you get mad at yourself. What a fool I've been. In the Noah kind of trial and and temptation, there's a temptation to self-pity. In the Lot kind of trial and temptation, there's a temptation to self-hatred. But in both situations, the temptation underneath all the temptations is to let go of the truth. Trials, just as much as false teachers, just make you say, why why don't I just give up? Why not forget about the truth? Why not just live for yourself? And the answer to those questions is no, because of the then statements. There is judgment for the unrighteous, and there is rescue for the godly. And that rescue is a promise of God. That promise is an assurance of to the Lord's faithful people that those who deal in deceptive teaching will certainly face divine judgment. And yet the Lord knows how to rescue his children. You can take the chart down now. Thanks. And so that's verses 4 through 10. If-then statements. And then from verses 10 to 16... Peter just unloads on the false teachers. He just blasts the false teachers. He uses the example of Balaam from Numbers 22. I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, with that. But he says, listen to these 
get piled up here as he blasts the false teachers. He says they have defiling passion, they despise authority, they blaspheme, they are ignorant, they're reveling in their deceptions, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls, they have hearts trained in greed, they love gain from wrongdoing. We could go through that in some detail, but it all comes down to the pursuit of money, sex, and power, or what Tim Keller calls counterfeit gods. Counterfeit gods. Now, if you want to know how to address the false teaching of our culture, I've added a recommended reading list. It's been added to the sermon manuscript. It's been added to the sermon outline, uh, some books on how to address the false teaching of our culture. It's not talking about cults. It's not talking about New Age movement or pagan movements or false religions. It's talking about how our culture, the air, the atmosphere that we live in, is constantly bombarding us with false teaching. And so I've given you an extensive reading list on how do Christians respond to that. And I hopefully that will take you much further, I commend them to you. So moving on, we've seen how destructive false teaching can be, but where does it end up? Where does it end up? Since Second Peter is written to new believers, people who are already part of the church, how is this going to affect them? And so we have the consequences of false teaching. Verses 17 to 22, the consequences of false teaching. It says, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have uh, escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, these are the consequences for those who are already in the church, for those who've made a profession of faith but may not be true believers. They are the ones where you just don't know that are the most susceptible to false teaching. See, false teaching is kind of like a constant stream of water coming under the foundation of your house. It corrodes the foundation. It's destructive. And if you don't address the problem, that steady stream of corrosive teaching flowing into your life will bring the whole edifice, the whole construction of biblical truth crumbling to the ground. If you knew there's this constant stream of corrosive, destructive water flowing under your house every day, you're not just going to shrug and say, ah, you know, we'll get to it sometime, no big deal. No, you're going to realize this is a crisis. 
If I want my house to stay standing, I got to deal with this problem. And that's Peter's attitude. He wants it to be our attitude when it comes to false teaching. This is a crisis. We have to deal with the problem. It's destructive and corrosive and deadly. Notice why this message is so corrosive. Verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, the defilements of the world, and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Similar to what he says about the false teachers all the way back, second half of verse 1, where he said they secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The master who bought them is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his cross by which he secured redemption for sinners. The phrase builds on the imagery of the Old Testament where God has redeemed his people Israel, his enslaved people. He buys them back out of bondage and sets them free. That's the metaphor. And in the same way, Christ pays the redemption price of our freedom at the cost of his own blood. And Peter is saying that at some point, these false teachers, they claim to have been bought and redeemed by the blood of Christ. He was their master, they said, and he bought them and set them free. They made a profession of faith in a crucified and risen Christ. They joined the church. They said Jesus was their Lord, and he bought us back from slavery. But now these same men who made that profession of faith in the blood and righteousness of Christ are denying Jesus, whose death, they said, was the purchase price of their deliverance. So it's not just that what they're teaching is wrong. Peter tells us that they knew better. They knew better. There was a day when they got the gospel. They grasped who Christ was and what Christ has done. He's the master who bought them at the cost of the cross, and now they are denying him. Now, probably given the number of references in Peter's letters to the second coming of Christ, part of their denial had to do with rejecting any idea that Jesus was coming back. But whatever the specifics, their false teaching is not a secondary matter. It's a basic rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a repudiation of the only one who can save us. They are buying back their slavery. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. The verse says they promise freedom but they themselves are slaves to corruption. That's the cultural narrative that we so often hear, isn't it? They promise freedom. Don't be so strict. Don't be so narrow-minded. You're just being legalistic. You'll shut people out. You'll turn them off. You need to be more inclusive. Our approach is more freeing. We're the grace people. We're the liberty people. We're the ones that will lift your burdens and set you free. That's what the false teachers are saying. It all sounds so familiar. It all sounds so biblical. But where does it take you? 
Verse 17. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. They sound enlightened, but there's no light in their future. They are heralded as leading lights, but their end is the gloom of utter darkness. Now, that sometimes this happens to someone, and you just can't understand it. You've seen someone walk away from the faith. We now call it deconstruction, and it just leaves you dumbfounded. But it happens to churches, too. You can look at the history of liberal churches, and you'll see it takes three generations to lose the gospel and embrace false teaching. Dr. D.A. Carson says, the first generation believes the gospel and thought that came with certain social obligations. The second generation assumed the gospel, and so they focused on the social obligations. The third generation denied the gospel and had only the social obligations when there was nothing to be obligated to. That's how we lose churches. And when we lose churches, we lose the people in those churches. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Let me say this plainly. It really doesn't matter what else you believe. No matter how faithful you may be to the scriptures, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal God who became man and so was and is and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever who obeyed for us and bled for us and died for us and rose again for us and reigns over us and is returning for us, if you repudiate the fundamental central message of the gospel, the person and work, resurrection, reign, and return of Christ, however moral you may be, however prayerful, however much Bible knowledge you may have, if you deny the master who bought us, you will face what Peter calls slavery to corruption. That's the consequences of false teaching. Get this wrong and the whole foundation of biblical truth comes tumbling down. And everything rests on this foundation. What do you make of Jesus Christ? What do you make of his life, his death, his cross, his empty tomb? Those are the questions that will decide your eternal destiny. That's what he's saying. What do you do with Jesus? Now we've seen here that uh, Peter's talking about false teachers. He's warning people about false teachers. He's been saying, don't listen to them. You have to listen to what God has said. You need to listen to God's word. You have to listen to what God has spoken to us. So this brings us back to those verses that we skipped over last week. 2 Peter 1 verses 16 to 21, which gives us the antidote to false teaching. The antidote to false teaching. Chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed 
to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If we listen to what God has said, instead of listening to the false teachers, then we have to ask, how has God spoken to us? That's what Peter is explaining in these verses. And to substantiate his claim, he offers two pieces of evidence. Eyewitness testimony, verses 16 to 18, and authoritative documents, verses 19 to 21. These are the two basic types of evidence in the ancient world, and not much has changed. Even today, lawyers usually make their case by submitting documents or calling on witnesses. You want to prove your point in the court of law, you need eyewitness testimony or trustworthy sources. And the Apostle Peter has both. The first set of sources, verse 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Who's the we? Who's he talking about? Talking about the people who actually saw Jesus, saw what he did, heard what he said. He gives an example of the transfiguration, one of the more supernatural events in Jesus' life. He's talking about people who actually saw Jesus, and therefore they're the sources of what he said and what he did. These are the writers of the New Testament. They were either eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, like Paul or John or Peter, who saw Jesus raised from the dead, or they were like Luke, who said at the beginning of his gospel that he went and talked to the eyewitnesses and put the accounts of what Jesus said and did together from that. The New Testament authors are people who either were eyewitnesses or who talked to the eyewitnesses. So they tell us what God has said through Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Peter is saying the same thing Luke said. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses. What he's saying is that when you read the New Testament, these are not legends. This is not fiction. This is not hearsay. This is the truth, which is what Jesus himself said in John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So what do we know about truth from this passage, from 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21, it is a wonderful passage about the nature of biblical truth. First, we see biblical truth is written truth. Peter is conscious of his mortality, and he's anticipating his death. And while he's alive, he's able to remind his readers of his teaching. But after his departure, it'll need to be written down and made accessible. If God has said and done something unique in Christ, Provision must be made for its preservation. It is inconceivable that God would allow it to be lost. Scripture is God's word written. Second biblical truth is eyewitness truth. He alludes to the transfiguration when he saw God's glory, he heard God's voice, back to verse 16. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. 
The eyewitness principle lies behind all of Scripture. For God raised up witnesses to record and interpret what he was doing in Israel. The meaning of his actions was not self-evident. For example, there were many tribal migrations taking place in the ancient Near East, but nobody would have known that the exodus was unique unless God raised up Moses. And again, there were thousands of crucifixions that took place under Roman rule, but nobody would have known that the cross of Christ was unique unless God had raised up the apostles. It's written truth. It's eyewitness truth. Third, it's enlightening truth. Verse 19, you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. People of God are pictured as pilgrims traveling by night. They need a lamp, and Scripture is a plain book with a practical purpose. It lights the way for us. Fourth, it's divine truth. No prophecy, Peter writes, ever originated in the mind or will of men, but of God. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. At one point, the late Dr. J.I. Packer said, the word which God addresses to us is an instrument, not only of government, but also of fellowship. He made us with the intention that he and we might walk together forever in a love relationship. But such a relationship can exist only when the parties involved know something of each other. God, our maker, knows all about us before we say anything, but we can know nothing about him unless he tells us. Therefore, God sends his word to us to attract us as well as to instruct us. The word of God is there not only to give us the truth, not only to reveal a sovereign God, but to change our lives. Is the word changing your life? Pastor Ray Ortland is a uh, semi-retired pastor in Nashville. Uh, a few of you uh, have known him. He used to be in the PCA, pastored in Georgia and Tennessee for a while. But he gives us a good example of how the word changes us. Back in 2007, he had by his own account a catastrophic disaster of a year. His church fired him. And him and his wife, Janie, went for counseling. And they went to see the late Dr. David Paulison. He's a well-known Christian counselor. And they spent the day together. Dr. Paulison was an oasis of calm, gentleness, and reasonableness amid a swirl of accusations, loss, and heartbreak. And Ray tells the story like this. One suggestion David made became so significant that I have passed it along to many others since then. I can't remember his exact words, but it went something like this. Ray and Janie, you are suffering. And it isn't going to get better anytime soon. So here's an idea. Ask the Lord for a verse of scripture, a promise in the Bible to help you get through this. And when that verse jumps off the page into your heart, make it the theme of your life while you slog your way forward. However dark the nighttime sky might be, you can always look up at that North Star promise, get your bearings again and keep going. But wallpaper your reality with the word of God. 
wallpaper your reality with the word of God. And Ray says, so we did. We asked the Lord to personalize some biblical encouragement of his own choosing, and he did. Janie was reading 1 Peter 5 soon thereafter, and verse 10 was a direct hit in the best of ways. It says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We seized that verse. We memorized 1 Peter 5.10. We discussed it. We prayed about it. Janie wrote it out on three-by-five cards and taped them to the inside of the kitchen cupboards. So every time she went to get a glass or a plate, there was 1 Peter 5.10. I wrote it out and stuck it to the visor in my truck so that at a red light I could look up and be strengthened by 1 Peter 5.10. We never let that verse out of our sight. In ways we could not have imagined, God has proved faithful to his promise. That word from above didn't merely help us cope. It redefined how we experience reality. It kept me in the ministry. Ray goes on. David Paulison understood human despair. He understood how God helps sufferers. He understood that what we need is a hope dependent on nothing in this world but grounded in God alone. The word himself in 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace who called you his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He said that word has become one of the most precious words in all the Bible. God, not delegating the task to any man or any angel, but God himself getting personally involved with us in a moment of real need. He says, at the time, I had to admit, though my heart resonated with 1 Peter 5.10, I struggled to believe it. But David was right, and thanks to his wise counsel, I turned to the Lord with the weak faith I had, and gradually I was enabled to believe it more and more. And now I know at a deep and personal level that God himself restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes us when we have nothing to offer him but our sorrow and need. In the face of false hopes, false teaching, false worldviews, false prophets, a false cultural narrative, and false teachers, we need a God who himself restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes us by the prophecy of Scripture. So wallpaper your reality with the Word of God. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you, and we confess our failure to embrace the way of truth. Sometimes we act as people who are way too easily enticed by false teaching. And yet we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Grant that we may live as people redeemed from slavery by the blood of your Son who obeyed and bled and died and rose again and reigns and is returning all for us. 
Continue to work in our hearts as we learn from the Apostle Peter to embrace our status as exiles, as strangers in a strange land, as those who have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, draw us ever closer to the Master who bought us. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.